welcome to The Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we look at how a potential Fed pivot fed a short covering rally in gold, how the performance of the Australian dollar hinges on China's economic reopening and a key price targets ahead for the yellow metal. I'm your host, Shay Russell, and joining me today is Nick Frappel, ABC Refineries Global Head of Institutional Markets. Nick, how are you, mate? I'm extremely well, thanks, Shay. Um, I know it's been a really long time since we last did a recording together. I think it's been over a month. Um, done a lot of travel in that time, and uh, also when trying to get back on tra- track with this uh, this week's episode, I made the mistake of trying to do a really big, overarching, thematic discussion about what's happened in the last month, and that is. Um, not a great way to go. So it's better to try and turn it into bite-sized chunks, basically. So uh, yeah, so here we go. Back to gold and silver. <laughs> now, Nick, while I would love to recap what's happened over the first month, we've only got 20 minutes to make today's show today. However, some of the things that have occurred in the past month, I have no doubt will appear uh, over the coming months ahead. Uh, but first and foremost, I want to start with our favorite thing of all, precious metals, that is gold. Now, let's talk about what is driving gold at the moment. Uh, the, the yellow metal has been up considerably in the past uh, four weeks since we've last spoken, uh, nearly 5% since our November 10 podcast. Tell me, what is the narrative in the background that is driving the gold price higher right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that uh, rally, um, largely largely dollar-based uh, or dollar-fueled rally, um, and again, driven the, the big picture that uh, – the big th- point that drove it was, again, the market – um, which is so easily tempted into thinking the Fed will pivot and have a slower and less aggressive tightening policy, and that that will be reflected in, across the across the space, you know, elsewhere. Um, again, you know, we've had these in, in the previous podcasts. We've tended to hew to the uh, higher for longer narrative, but a lot of the gold of the gold rally look technically. It held well above sixteen twelve. I think we had a, a sort of a kind of triple bottom there, and I think that was earmarked in our last last discussion that low sixteen hundreds should be good support. What managed money has been doing, mainly a lot of short covering. Um, if we look at sh- the progress since the middle of November to, to date, and it's the twentieth uh, of December today, um, short covering three point eight million ounces from the managed money cap- category. Managed money long was added about 1.57, so much bigger, bigger um, move there overall. In the uh, if you look at the total total buying, a lot of that buying came from the the shorts since November the November the eighth. Now, where does that leave positioning? Managed money long stand at about 10.37 million ounces long as of last Tuesday. Um, managed money shorts there at 6.63. So net managed money long, about th- almost 4 million ounces, 3.7 million ounces. That's the biggest long since mid-August of this year um, and, and sort of got us out of the um, sort of successive uh, net short positions, which net short positioning, which um, gold was kind of suffering from. If we look at what the ETFs have been doing, uh, ETFs are just over 94 million ounces. Uh it's kind of moved sideways in the last few weeks, so it appears to have stabilized after the sort of long period of, of net outflows. So that's positioning. Um, the one thing I would say about positioning as well is uh, if you look at where 
managed money longs have have got in just lately, and this probably explains some of the heaviness in the market. Um, the uh, the period, the week ending the thirteenth of December had another million ounces flow into managed money longs, and they came at a at a VWAP of about eighteen oh two. Um, so they're kind of they're, they're late arrivals, and that's quite an expensive expensive VWAP. You know, the uh, gold's spent a fair bit of time since then, and since the thirteenth, we've seen a, a drop overall. Uh, certainly, when I looked at it uh, up to Friday's figures, we've seen a drop overall in the in the CME open interest, and that's kind of implies, given where the price moved, that implies that some of those recent longs might have quit already. That's just just what you can kind of try and infer from open interest. Uh, moving on, Nick, I want to talk about price targets. Uh, now, the last time we recorded this um, pod, a podcast, uh, gold was bobbing along in the sixteen hundred US dollar mark, but since then it's broken out and it sort of banged its head on the eighteen hundred dollar level. Uh, tell me, do you see any further upside for gold, or is the good news about to be taken out of this rally? If we look at targets. Um, Upside targets in the shorter to medium term, look, they imply a move back to 1811 and then uh, maybe up to 1853. Uh, and then for those targets, which are relatively short term, a move below 1772 would negate those targets. Um, the hourly chart, which it produces much longer term targets, upside targets extending to 1865 and 1907, those bigger targets, they'd get knocked out if we move back below the recent lows, the, the 1615 sort of area. Um, from which this rally actually extended. And uh, support and resistance levels. Support comes in at about 17, 74, 76 band. That's the daily standard line. And the four-hour Ichimoku, uh, four-hour Ichimoku cloud. It's also support from the rising hourly point-and-figure trend line at about 1740, 1745. And there's deeper support from the daily cloud top. That comes in about 1701 at the moment. If I look at resistance levels at the moment, four hour, four hourly standard line about eighteen hundred bucks, very close. Uh, eighteen forty two from the fifty percent retracement of the move up from the low sixteen hundreds, and eighteen eighty six from the weekly cloud base. That obviously looks quite remote now, but it's just one to bear in mind. I think the significant ones really are eighteen forty two, uh, and, and obviously that eighteen eighty six is a is a is a, a big level and. Fairly sure that around there, um, that would mark the, a, a difficult area for a significant rally to to go through. Nick, while we're here, let's talk about silver. Now, uh, the other white metal, the precious metal that people often forget about, has gone on an incredible run uh, in the past four weeks, up almost ten percent, uh, depending on what day you looked at a chart. In fact, uh, I believe it's it's banged its head a couple of times at twenty four dollars per ounce. Now, tell me, can silver sustain this momentum? Or is there uh, a few down days or a few down weeks on its way for this metal? Look, silver managed money longs grew pretty well, over 17 million ounces in the week ending December 13th. Managed money shorts reduced by about 14 million ounces. So um, overall, uh, about 32 million ounces or whatever, adding up very, very uh, promptly in my head. Um, point is, is that managed money longs in silver um, grew faster again that last week than the shorts. Silver ETF behavior, about 750 million ounces long, decline of about 5 million ounces in the middle of November. Not really a whole lot going on there. Not an inflow, but perhaps a stabilization. 
Now, we're looking at silver targets. We hit the 24 US dollar target referenced in November the 10th pretty comfortably, and silver is rolling back as expected after hitting that target. Um, further to upside targets, US dollar 24.50, and Florelli continues onwards about 27, but we're actually interacting with the weekly uh, cloud right here. And so far, it looks like the weekly cloud top resistance at the, uh, the, the sort of 24 downwards level um, looks like it's winning. So it, downside targets uh, looking to about 21, um, 27. Um, but before that, we've got support or around that, we've got support around about 22 and 2080. Now, Nick, I want to shift gears and move into the macro portion of today's conversation. And a lot of our podcasts this year has been focusing, uh, has focused on rates and what the Federal Reserve Bank primarily is going to do and other central banks that have followed suit. Uh, and you and I have often pointed out the reason why we continue to talk about these markets is uh, because these are the markets that matter the most right now. Now, given that we're wrapping up and we're at the end of 2022 and we are moving into 2023, what can we expect from the Fed going? going into next year. Uh, on this podcast, we've both, you know, had the view of higher for, the, the higher for longer narrative is here to stay for some time. But tell me, what is the market expecting uh, going into next year? Is the Fed likely to pivot or are we likely to see uh, higher for longer continue to play out? One of the big stories here is um, really about sort of now that we're, and this is appropriate since we're at the end of 2022, and I'm pretty sure we won't be able to fit in another uh, podcast before New Year uh, for various commitments going on. Um, worthwhile looking at, at what's going on in 2023 and people's expectations around rates. The price rally and the trigger for that short covering came from a perception of a reduced rate of hiking, as we uh, discussed earlier. Reduce terminal rates from the Fed, um, challenging the you know the whole higher for longer view that we've subscribed to in the pot of gold. The perception of pivots always been a very dynamic and fluid thing, and of course now the evolving consensus is that core inflation um, certainly stickier in in the eurozone and US than uh, than the headline rate implies. US wage inflation is brisk, and the terminal rate expectations are actually edging higher again. So. Um, and certainly the message that we're getting from the Fed via uh, Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell and other speakers, um, he's re reiterated the focus recently on labor costs and the impact on U.S. inflation. And that message was uh, reiterated and repeated by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, Governor John Williams. Um, so we think there's still a good case for uh, a higher for longer narrative. Um, and that will help keep the dollar steady, and it may delay, um, you know, the sort of the, the gold rally. I think there's a very largely consensus view. And talking to a couple of my colleagues in the market, they're saying, "Well, is it a good consensus that um, the sort of gold rally will, will sort of extend, um, sort of more likely after the terminal rate has been hit, hit in the first half of next year?" Um, so far, the gold market's doing a pretty good. Um, uh, impression of getting ahead of that, but more of more than just the uh, Fed here, the ECB um, approach has been um, really aggressive as well, and it looks like we'll see a, a pretty extensive um, sort of catch up in in rates and tightening from the European Central Bank through next year as well. The reason why I mention is this because 
really we're looking at it again it's like a worldwide tightening process and what that's what impact that's going to have on other asset markets um, namely sort of you know bonds especially in the two-year period and equities one of the reasons why the ecb um, is being so aggressive uh, is that you might think you know it's surprisingly aggressive given how fragile things there sort of you know high energy costs um, prompting um, slower activity. The Eurozone has almost certainly a much more pro- pronounced lag in the Eurozone inflation rate compared to the US. And expectations are that core inflation will remain high through 2023. And that to get on top of this, um, ECB needs to have a much, much more aggressive program of rates uh, alongside quantitative tightening. Um, that's going to be a tough to to carry out uh, economically and politically, and it'll be a hard uh, sort of road to follow. Um, expectations for core inflation and the premium on top of that required to actually keep core inflation at bay, mainly in the ECB takes rates um, through 4% on, uh, as a terminal terminal level. The other source of eurozone tightening will arise from the ECB switch, switching from buyer of first resort to eurozone bond issues. It's bought pretty much all the issuance over the last seven years, um, taking the balance sheet up, up to 8.5 billion euros. When you switch from being sort of you know this huge sort of uh, bond buying program to a bond um, sort of selling program effectively and running off that uh, bond. Um, the bonds that you've got and, and stopping being the buyer of first resort, you really need to look at what's got to happen in order for other buyers to step in and be incentivized and for other buyers to be incentivized, particularly not just the um, central bank will be uh, largely absent, but also a lot of uh, the commercial banking center sector will be um, balance sheet constrained as well. And, you know, risk averse to buying to adding to their bond portfolios you've then got to have the sort of third category sort of private uh, bond holders uh, non-bank um, bond buyers those those that sector has to be very clearly incentivized to step in there and the only way they're going to be incentivized is if the yields are higher so short term looking out for the sort of one to two year um, sort of uh, eurozone bonds and so on we'd expect yields to go uh, significantly higher um, and again this all feeds back to a uh, sort of general major with the exception of boj which has yet said they, which continues to say they will carry on with their existing monetary program what's going on there what's going on is you've just got this really powerful uh tightening sort of de-stimulus going on and feeding that back into gold very <laughs> after very long sort of uh, extemporization on on rates is we'll see initially um, an expected higher rate environment um, that'll impact on growth and uh, earnings um, and uh, equity uh, valuations as well as bond valuations that should that should be medium term attractive uh, for gold as an asset to diversify out of um, sort of the hammering we'd expect uh, bonds to take in the short term and also the um, impact on 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 growth and equities. 
So um, that's uh, that's where we see 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 that going. Now, Nick, I want to move on to the Aussie dollar. Now, similar to gold, uh, the Aussie dollar has actually moved quite higher in the last four weeks since our last podcast, uh, up a little bit over four uh, percent. Now, it's you've called the Aussie dollar price movements quite well this year, and I believe it's hit some price targets that you put out in our last podcast. Uh, however, what I want to find out is what can we say that is actually driving the Aussie dollar at the moment. Uh, not really going to talk about the Aussie in detail because the Aussie, I think, has gone back to the levels we talked about in the Nov Ten, um, Nov Ten uh, podcast, which was I think we had a look at saying you know that we'd, we'd expected a move to 0.68 versus the dollar, and that's pretty much come about. Um, the Aussie obviously is contingent uh, on on two things really, or two interrelated things. Uh, more widely, the world economy going into 2023, and there's that sort of all that um, tightening and tightening headwinds that I mentioned just now. But also <clears throat> um, China, and the big news on China has been about reopening. Um, you know, local governments are asked to apply some of the uh, uh, zero COVID rules less vigorously, kind of shifting the blame from Beijing to the local officials. Um, obviously, we saw some really, really um, widespread, incredibly interesting protests, biggest ones on the mainland since 1989. Um, those protests have, in the words of Yale law professor, professor uh, Tai Su Zhang, they, to some degree, they provide an off-ramp to the central government that was looking at poor economic performance and the cost social and economic of the zero COVID program and probably needing some way to to sort of to move on. And uh, to some degree, the, those protests would have um, helped sort of formulate their, their decision. Um, now, just sort of a little bit of a, uh, a, a sort of perhaps general comment, um, you know, history always seems to rhyme rather than repeat. It's interesting that amidst the recent program protests, um, we had the death of former leader uh, Zhang Zemin. Um, Zhang actually turned out to be, he was the replacement for a um, Chinese general secretary of the CCP, uh, Zhao Jiang, who was removed after being too sympathetic with protesters at Tiananmen back in 1989. Um, at the time of the Tiananmen protests back in 1989, one of the added factors was the death of former General Secretary Hu Yabang. Um, he was actually an extremely popular reformer during the 1980s. Uh, he died just before the protests um, really heated up. And uh, students who wanted to mark and respect his death, Hu Yabang's death, actually ended up clashing with the government at that time. Zhang was, side, uh, was uh, pushed aside. Um, replaced by Zhang Zemin, wasn't a reformer, but nonetheless, his time in government is seen by some as really a kind of golden age in contrast with the COVID-constrained pre- present. So a little bit of a detour there through sort of um, through through China. We don't really see, you know, China, the reopening has been good for um, higher oil and copper and bidding for nat gas, as you'd expect, there are already signs that the reopening has led to um, some some pretty serious internal issues around uh, Chinese supply chains and so on. So it's coming at a cost. Um, you don't know yet whether, whether these, which which will win out in terms of the choice to, to reopen, uh, you know, whether whether how growth will work out, how um, 
the infection rate will play out, but it looks as though the infection rate is, is growing very sharply. So it, it's a tricky outcome. And, uh, it, you know, I don't, I, nothing, not, not a foregone conclusion at all that reopening is just a one way bet on the Chinese economy. Anyhow, that is, uh, those are the things we're looking at. Um, Chinese property, uh, many, many, uh, Many, many steps taken to try and prop that up, but uh, look like they're made out of balsa wood at the moment um, and don't suspect that those uh, moves to shore up property um, will help in the longer term. They will provide some kind of confidence in the shorter term, but not in the, not in the longer term. Um, and what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of offshore selling of um, Chinese uh, uh, financial assets in order to pay for uh, redemptions of uh, wealth management products. There's, there's an awful lot going on there. Um, and longer term, does it bode well for the Aussie? Uh, not entirely, but the short-term reopening has the longer-term outlook uh, way more cloudy. I think I'll, I'll draw to, draw to a, a close on that note. Uh, Nick, and unfortunately, we are going to have to call time here. We have run out of time today, uh, but I want to thank you very much for today's podcast. There's been some very uh, richly discussed topics, even if we haven't spoken for four weeks. It has absolutely been worth the wait. Uh, but with that, our final podcast for the year comes to a close. So, Nick, thanks for being here. So, once again, absolutely fantastic to be able to talk with you, Shay. Um, wishing uh, all our listeners a very happy Christmas and uh, New Year and look forward to resuming in 2023. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappell, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time. 